And how do we select our main topics here on the John Campia Show? It's really simple. See, you guys come up with them. Whenever you come across a big topic issue or story that you guys feel we should have as a main topic here on the show, just go anytime 24-7 over to www.thejohncampiashow.com slash contact. Once you guys get there, you're going to see a form. Fill it out with your topic or question. It's totally free. Hit submit, and then maybe, just maybe, you might see your submission featured as a main topic here on the John Campia Show. And by the way, Casey McNatt also sends in a super chat badge in live chat. Thank you, Casey. Good to see you, man. All right, guys. With all that down, let's get into main topic number one, shall we? And our first main topic today, our first topic today gets submitted to us by Santez, who writes, Hey, John and crew. Deadline is reporting that the Kurgan himself, Clancy Brown, is joining John Wick Chapter 4 with the cast expanding... What are your thoughts on this addition to the cast and your excitement for this movie? I am super excited. All right. Thanks a lot for sending that in, Santez. And yes, the news just keeps on rolling with Clancy Brown lately. Now, of course, Clancy Brown is an actor that's not a household name with a whole ton of people. But he happens to be an actor who is in not one, but two of my top 10 favorite films of all time. He is, of course, the mighty Kurgan in Highlander, and he is the guard in Shawshank Redemption. Yeah, the toughest screw that ever walked the floors of Shawshank Prison. That's right, and I just love this guy, and I've always loved seeing him pop up in different things. Now, again, and recently, we've seen a couple of things for him popping up. First, we recently heard that he's joined, he's going to be the villain of this upcoming new season of Dexter, which to me was just fabulous to hear. And now we are finding out that he is also joining uh, John Wick Chapter 4. I I believe, if I'm not mistaken, he also does the voice of Lex Luthor in a lot of the DC animated yep. stuff. Um, he's just got one of these incredible, powerful voices and one of these incredible, powerful screen presences. And I just love this guy. And I've had the chance. It was a thrill. This I still remember it was years ago. I had the chance to meet him. Such a thrill. Uh, to do that and it was great anyway this comes to us from the folks over at joe blow who write the following the good word has arrived via one of the bowery king's messenger pigeons that clancy brown is joining the cast of john wick chapter four he'll star opposite kiana reeves donnie yen uh hero yuki sanada uh rena so i'm sure i'm going to mispronounce her last name sawayama uh shamir anderson lance riddick and ian mcshane in the upcoming sequel which is set to be helmed by chad stileski who's of course helmed the other ones i have been a fan of clancy brown since i can remember stileski said to have him be a part of this project is an honor we will make a perfect he will make a perfect addition to the world of John Wick. And once again, that comes to us from the folks at Joe Blow. And by the way, Jesse Price sends in a super chat badge in the live chat. Thank you, Jesse. Appreciate that, man. Uh, listen, I know not everybody knows Clancy Brown and not everybody is as big of a fan of his as I am. But I am totally geeking out about this because first of all, it's John Wick. I, I personally thought, look, John Wick 1 blew us all away. John Wick 2 was still really good, but I thought, even though I really, really liked it, I still thought it was a bit of a step down from John Wick 1. But then John Wick 3 came out, and it's my favorite of the bunch. It's completely my favorite of the bunch. I absolutely love this thing, and I love the dude, and I just I just love these movies. And to have Clancy Brown join it 
it to me it or it puts my excitement level through the roof. Rob, I just don't know any other way to put it. I'm just geeking out over here. I saw this news. And it just it put like a massive syringe of joy directly into my heart and gave me the full dose. I am extremely happy about this. Super thrilled. Anyway, Rob, you hear about this. Uh, what do you think about the addition of Clancy Brown to John Wick Four? Dude, you know how I said that. Anything could may be made 25% better with the proper application of ninjas. Yes. <laughs> well, I, I would like to amend that and say that anything can be made 50% better with the proper application of Mr. Clancy Brown. And, <laughs> I, and I have to tell you, I, I have been a Clancy Brown fan. This year marks my 38th year as a Clancy Brown fan. So I'm going to take you all the way back to 1983, John. And the first Bad Boys, directed directed by Halloween 2's Rick Rosenthal, starring wow. Sean Penn, Sean Penn, Esai Morales, and Ali Sheedy. The movie Bad Boys. It's a prison. It's a youth prison drama where Clancy Brown plays a, really a prick, um, and he has a great comeuppance in the movie. But that was the first time I ever saw him. And when I saw uh, Highlander three years later, I'm like. Somebody clearly saw Bad Boys because when he showed up, when he showed up as the Kurgan, I'm like, okay, I I thought now that was some good casting. And whenever he shows up, I mean, you know, he has no problem playing like he's not just a villain. He's like the most hated villain that they can make him. And I love he plays it to the hilt, but he can also play a, a kind, sympathetic guy, too. But I man, I love Clancy Brown and he's one of those guys that just ages like fine wine, you know? I mean, yeah. he's lo lost no power in the last 38 years. So having him be in John Wick and Dexter, I mean, would this be the Brownessance now? That's the Brownessance. By the way, you mentioned he's not just a villain. Like, there was a show I was really into for a couple of seasons a few years ago called Sleepy Hollow. Do you remember that? It ran oh, on yeah. Fox. It got pretty bad in the last season or so, but the first few seasons I really like. And Clancy Brown was actually a heroic character in that. He was kind of like the the adoptive father figure of our main uh, lead girl in the, in the show. Anyway, I really liked him in that a lot. And by the way, Marcus Y in the live chat, uh, just gives us a great uh, a great answer. Like, Rob, you know your math. Every movie is made 25% better with ninjas. Every movie is made 50% better with Clancy Brown. All you got to do is give Clancy Brown some ninja training. Clancy Brown as a ninja. Clancy Brown as a ninja. Just mail it the Oscars. Just put all the Oscars in a box. Ship it to that movie's home. And by the way, our friends uh, Christopher Augustine and RM send in super chat badges in the live chat as well. Thank you, guys. I mean, there it is. You got the perfect movie. The perfect movie. Now, listen, guys, I understand. I am a little bit more of a Clancy Brown geek than, than probably most of you guys at home. I get it. Probably some of you are looking at this and saying, who is this guy? But I'm telling you, I love this dude. And to have him coming up in these big, high-profile projects, to me, I'm thinking, Rob, finally, this guy's going to yeah. get his due. At this stage of his career, he's finally going to get his due, and I'm excited about it. The question for you guys is, what do you think about the addition of Clancy Brown to John Wick 4? You can obviously tell I'm very happy about it. How do you guys feel about it? Jump on down to the comment section below and let us know your thoughts. All right, guys. With that down, let's move on to main topic number two, shall we? And our second main topic today gets submitted to us by Fred Medill, who writes... Just read an article at The Guardian, which poses this question. 
Does Disney slash Marvel or Warner Media and DC have moral obligations in the form of financial compensation to its artists and writers that go beyond contracts? If and when their work from years to decades ago become the backbone of a new movie franchise or streaming series, do they deserve something from a billion dollar hit? More and more comic artists are voicing their disdain that they are not getting a cut off the work that made these companies billions. All right. Thanks a lot for saying that in, Fred. And this is an interesting situation. There, as he referenced on uh, the outlet, The Guardian, which is a, a great outlet, they ran an article that is, I mean, shocking when you start reading it and understanding what's going on, but the problem is actually very complex. And the basics, I mean, when you look at the headline of the article, it's basically, I mean, look how it reads. Marvel and DC face backlash over pay. They sent me a thank you note and $5,000 and the movie made a billion. And, and it goes on to say that a lot of these comic book creators and, and these artists who work both writing characters and drawing characters and help make characters popular, whatever, it says, generally speaking, they usually get uh, you know, a check for $5,000 and an invitation to the premiere. Oh, and by the way, they got to pay their own way to the premiere and get their own damn hotels out of that $5,000 uh, that they got. Now, this comes to us uh, from the folks over at The Guardian who write the following. Several sources who have worked with Marvel say that remuneration for contributing to a franchise that hits it big varies between $5, 000, the $5,000 payment, nothing, or very rarely a special character contract which allows a select few creators to claim remuneration when their characters or stories are used. There are other potential ways to earn more. Many former writers and artists are made executives or producers on Marvel's myriad of movies, cartoons, and streaming series, for example, but those deals depend on factors other than legal obligation. So, Rob, basically... When you read through this article, and I highly recommend everybody, it's it's a well-written article. It's over at The Guardian. You guys should all go over and give it a read. When you read through it, the basic position is this, that yes, there are a very, very select few number of artists and writers who have gotten some half-decent compensation for characters that they have either created or were very instrumental in developing over the years that then went on to make billion dollar billion dollar paydays at the box office but a lot of those artists got exactly what the headline says well some got nothing Bupus. some get $5000 and a thank you note and you know some lip service from one of the directors or producers saying oh and special thanks to so and so who you know really brought this character to life and they get an invitation to the premiere it's funny, actually, Rob, you and I are friends with somebody. We, we won't name him here because I don't want to I, I don't know if he would want to be named. But you and I have a, a friend who created these comic book characters that were then used in a movie. And he couldn't even get an invite to the premiere of the movie. I remember he even wrote to me. He's like, dude, I can't get an invite to the premiere. They're using the characters I created in the movie. Can you help me out? Because I was going, I'm like, how am I going to the premiere? And this guy's not. But so it's, it's, it's a very difficult situation. And Rob, there's two ways of looking at this. There are two ways of looking at this. On the one hand, there is the initial shock of that, right? Because, you know, a guy either created a character or, 
you know, took over a character years later and really helped develop that character in the comics and who that and what that character was that later on somebody makes a movie out of makes a billion dollars off that movie and they get nothing. And that's a shock. And by $5,000 is nothing. So that's kind of shocking. And Rob, I, I am not adverse to saying the unpopular thing and I'm sorry, but the unpopular thing has to be said. There's the other side of that coin, which is, look, you got paid to do a job and you got paid what you agreed to do the job for. There was nothing in, uh, I mean, for a lot of these cases, there's nothing in there that says if the work you do for me that I am paying you for, I'm able to suddenly turn into something bigger later on that I owe you anything. An example of this, Rob, is this, is you contract a, a, a a woodworker to build chairs for you and you agree to pay him $5,000 to use his skill to build 20 chairs. So, okay, you pay him $5,000, he builds you 20 chairs. Now, you're done. Your business transaction is finished and now you own the chairs. Now, if you then decide to open a restaurant and use those 20 chairs and your restaurant becomes a huge success, partially in, in part because they're these it's the wonderful decor and people sit on these chairs every day, and you're making big money off the chairs that that guy created. Do you owe that guy more money? No, you don't. Rob, Ann and I moved into our first house recently, and we paid and needed some work. We paid a contractor $110,000 to do some renovations. And he, he did an amazing job. This contractor did incredible work. But like if Ann suddenly decides to start a cooking show on YouTube and it becomes a huge hit in this kitchen that this guy built and she makes millions off this YouTube cooking show, I'm totally making shit up now. But does the guy who then built that kitchen for us that we shoot this beautiful thing in, do we owe him more money later on or do we just owe what we had already paid him? And it's it's tricky because I know we as fans, we always want to rail against the man, right? We always want to rail against the man. But, and again, I'm not saying it's 100% that way. I'm saying I, I, I think there really is two sides of this coin. It's very difficult for me as an individual because on the one hand, I think, well, you got you got hired to do a job and they paid you to do the job and you did the job. Does the, do they now owe you more money later on for benefiting from the work that they paid you to do at the same time, there is something about a universal balance when, you know, you paid those artists, whatever, but part of the reason you were able to be so, and let's, let's face it. The main reason these movies are successful is because the screenwriters and the directors and the people who make the movies, but it's based on that work that got developed over the years even if nobody who went to go see the movie ever read those comics. And if you make a billion dollars off it, can't, shouldn't there be, as our, our person who wrote in, in the, uh, wrote in the letter said, should there be some kind of implied, if not legal obligation, a moral imperative to say, man, we made over a billion dollars at this. We should share a little bit out of that to the people who actually made it happen. And 
And honestly, Rob, I see both sides of the argument. I really do. It, it's it's tough one. It, yes, the artists and whatever are getting a raw deal, but were all the actual obligations to them met? I, it's tough. It's really, really tough, but I think it's more complicated than we make it out to be. Rob, listen, you have a very special place in your heart for creators, writers, and artists of these things. I'm sure you had a chance to take a look at this Guardian article. What are the impressions that, that it hit left you with? Well, like you, I mean, I think it's a complicated issue. And you know what I always say, what Bob Sugar said and Jerry Maguire, it ain't show friends, it's show business. And I always also say that you don't get what you deserve, you get what you negotiate. And I'll, I, will, I will give you an example, a, a specific Marvel example. Marvel made a movie called Captain America, The Winter Soldier. Now, The Winter Soldier is Bucky Barnes. Bucky Barnes has been around for decades. Uh, but Ed Brubaker, who created the idea of the Winter Soldier and used the character of Bucky Barnes in, in a very interesting, specific way, being unfrozen every couple of years or decades as an assassin, then thrown back into deep freeze. That was a very specific thing that Ed Brubaker, as the writer, created. And when I, I believe that, look, all comic book work is work for hire. It doesn't say, well, if you make a movie out of it, because no, because Marvel owns their characters. That's that's part of the that's part of when you sign up to write a comic book, you're signing a work for hire agreement. Meaning if you're in the you're playing in the Marvel Universe, everything in the Winter Soldier, Captain America himself, Sharon Carter, you know, whatever, uh, uh, Bucky Barnes, all of these things existed before you got there. However. The idea of the Winter Soldier and what you did with Bucky Barnes is so specific. It's not like when they went and made Captain America the Winter Soldier, while they might have been drawing from all of this lore, they're building their movie around your specific idea. And yes, contractually, it's work for hire. But it's Ed Brubaker's, the Winter Soldier's Ed Brubaker's idea. And like you said, what you want to do is if I was in charge, I would be like, okay, there's a, we published 10,000 comic books, 100,000 comic books, you know, a year, whatever. Not everyone becomes the Winter Soldier. Maybe one or two or three do. Like, I mean, Guardians of the Galaxy, did they draw upon a specific storyline? I don't know. But uh, Winter Soldier did. And I think if you're going to get that specific, that's when you you should just as a uh, as a matter of course pay the writer for coming up with that concept because you're using it you're using something not it's so specific to that particular writer not bucky barnes not captain america not hydra not sharon uh, but the winter soldier is pretty much came out of one man's imagination i think then it's just a matter of good policy and good business because you want to make sure that other creators aren't alienated either. There should be a payment. There should they should have okay, if we're going to use your character, you know, make it I don't know, a, some kind of a six-figure payment where a creator feels, all right, that was found money. I didn't exp 5 grand is not that's more insulting than anything else. Uh, it, and it should be we're going to pay you $250,000 and we're going to bring you to the premiere, you and a guest or maybe four people, and we'll put you up at a hotel. 
first-class accommodations. That's the least we could do. They should come up with a policy because of all of the creators, there's only been 24 Marvel movies now. How many, and a lot of those creators, there's nothing that specific in them that you can't sit there and go, well, this person, but the Winter Soldier is very specific. The other movies are a hodgepodge or an amalgamation of all of the work that people have done. But in that particular instance, it was one dude. And that should be a payment. And they can tell. They know. They know better. And make it worth people's while. So, you know, every Marvel creator comes in. And from now on, when they write a comic book story, maybe they, too, will do their best work. So it might get translated into something. You never know. But it's it's hard, John, because it ain't show friends. It's show business. And you don't get what you deserve. And when you do sign a work for hire contract, that's cut and dried. You know the potential exists. So do you do it and complain later? I mean, at the time when you got the job in the first place, you weren't complaining. Yeah. And, and, and in a work for hire uh, environment, I mean, part of the reality of that is what you create when you are being paid and compensated for doing that belongs to the people who are paying you. Like Period. I, I worked for AMC. And the reality was, and then later I was working for Complex, and the reality was, in my agreement, it, it was anything I create within the, the sphere of, of what our business was. Like, if I go and create a brand new way of making a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, that would have nothing to do with Complex. Anything I wanted to create as far as entertainment and YouTube and videos and stuff like that, anything I created belonged to AMC or then to Complex because they were paying me yeah. a salary. And if they were then to go on, I mean, here's the reality of it. If after I left Complex and Collider, if they had gone on to say sell movie talk that I created and I built over the years, if they went on to sell movie talk to Sony, which we were we were in talks with them for a while for that, but if they went on and sold movie talks to Sony for like four million dollars, the reality is. I wouldn't have been owed a penny legally, contractually. Right. They didn't owe me a thing. They paid me my salary to do my work. I created a show. I ran a show. I developed a show, and they paid me for it. And if they made $5 million off it later, they didn't have I mean, to give me a thing. But should they have given me a thing? That becomes the question. Well, yeah. And I, look, in a perfect world, I do think that doing good business, cutting people in on success – uh, is never a bad thing because what you want to do is you never know when you're going to roll around and work with somebody else again, you know, and I think ultimately, and how many times is it going to happen? How many times is somebody going to sell your show? You know, I worked for a magazine in the mid nineties that was published by Larry Flint hustler porn magazine, empresario, but he also had a lot of other non porn magazines, like a video game magazine called tips and tricks. That was very popular which also Chris, sounds like a porn magazine, by the way. I, I know. I'm just saying. Uh, it also uh, sounds like a porn magazine. <laughs> well, Mark Altman and Chris Gore created a magazine called Sci-Fi Universe. Yes, they did. And we, we all worked really hard on it. And one day, the Sci-Fi Channel basically bought it out from under all of us that wrote for it, bought it out from under Chris and Mark. They just literally walked into work one day, and they'd made this magazine and nurtured it and created it. Nope. Larry Flint sold it to our rival, and it was gone. Nothing. Sorry, guys. Bye. Clean out your office. <laughs> that was it. There was no warning. No, it, that's just that's that's show business, not show friends. 
And it was, I remember when that happened. I mean, I wasn't directly involved. I was the critic at large, but I didn't create the magazine. And Mark, you know, was really upset because he, you know, you build this thing up and, and it's just like, that is a tough, bitter pill to swallow, but that is the world. Yeah. And again, it's tough because like they brought up in the letter from a legal point of view and a legal obligation, they don't owe these creators anything. They they no. got paid to do their work, work that was owned by the company. But sometimes the legal thing is not necessarily the right thing. And if you're making a billion dollars, like, oh, should they be like the way I'm in Vegas? When I'm in Vegas with Ann, if I happen to have a good day at the poker tables, <laughs> I come back to the room and I split off a couple of hundred dollar bills to say yeah, to Ann and whichever friend of hers we brought along with us. Ah, you guys just go have fun because <laughs> it's like you share it around. I was only in Vegas because Ann allowed us to come to Vegas. So I should split it with her. I mean, yeah, when you're making a billion dollars, like granted, probably 95% of the people, Rob, tell me if you agree with this or not, because maybe I'm wrong. Probably 95% of the people that saw Black Panther, the movie, had probably never read a Black Panther comic book. I, right. I don't I don't think that's a crazy thing to say. I, I think probably that. But there still would be no Black Panther to make a movie out of and to make a billion dollars out of had a list of creators and writers and artists not, number one, created that character and then number two, developed and, and sustained that character over years. So should there be a moral obligation? It's... It's a tough, Rob, try going up to anybody and say, give that person $100,000 that you don't have to give them. Right. It's no, a tough it, conversation. Mean, and how do you, you know, look, I hate to say, here, here's what I think is very odd in our culture. Everybody wants to get rich. Everybody wants to get paid. And yet the companies that have figured out ways to get rich and get paid, we suddenly then vilify. And, and we vilify them because they become very draconian and, and in ways, but, but, but it's, it's like this idea, like you, you hear a bunch of people now that yes, let's all be Marxists now and let's, let's control the means of production. We got to give it all back to the workers. And I, I listen to people talk this way and I'm like, how do you think the means of production got there? Like somebody had to build the assembly line, you know, somebody had to risk their money and put in all the capital in the beginning. So now that it exists and somebody's doing well, you think that we just have to be collectivist and give all that back to the workers that didn't risk anything. They didn't risk their own money. They didn't. And it's a bizarre, we have this really bizarre way of looking at the world. I think that, that on one hand, yes, we all want to get rich through our hard work, but then once you get rich, then everyone hates you for it. <laughs> and <laughs> you know, very few people get rich in this world just because yeah, there's people that inherit wealth. But, you know, usually those, the, it changes when you're inheriting money or you're inheriting a business since you didn't build it. You know, there's that old adage and I would I, I, I'm never going to get it right. The people that actually build the means of production, then the people that inherit it, they, they're the custodians of it. And then they're the third generation is the one that messes it all up because they had no dog in the hunt or whatever, something along those lines. And, and it's a tough call, man. It is a tough call in our society. But, you know. Um, there was no Marvel Cinematic Universe before 2008. So when Ed Brubaker took on the contract to write Captain America, 
He didn't know that the Winter Soldier was going to end up making uh, be a movie that made over seven hundred million dollars at the global box office. He didn't know, nor how could he have known? So the question is, does he deserve that money? Does he deserve more than five grand? That's a tough call because most comic book creators never get that taste of success. How many comic book creators get one of their storylines turned into a multi or a hundred million dollar movie? Not many. So that's why I think. Maybe it should be rethought. But then you pay everybody that ever worked on Captain America $100 million or hundred grand or whatever, all the way back to the 1940s or 50s. How do you, how do you make that work? Yeah, I mean, and it goes to, to the other thing as well. I mean, like I've often talked about, okay, okay, okay. Well, what about the people who actually worked on the film for like six months? Like what about the set designer who worked yeah. on the sets of the movies to create these environments you see on screen. Should they get a percentage of the movie? What about the gaffer who was there every single day, making sure all the little details of the set under the direction of the cinematographer and everything were there. They busted their ass and they worked hard. Should they also get a well, percentage of it? I mean, I just, it's, but it's they where get do you paid, draw the line. Yeah. They get paid. Well, though, the people that work on movies at the level that Marvel is working at, they're all the best in the business, you know, and they're getting right. paid. Uh, and and I think that everybody who works on Marvel movies, I mean, sure, I'm, some of them probably gripe about how much they get paid, but Marvel's got a team of people that are the best in the business. And they're all there, and, and that's why movies are as expensive as they are, because those people get compensated um, by with what they deserve. It's a tough call. You know, it comes down to, when you work on, because not everything, like how many things become the the hits that Marvel, the Marvel Cinematic Universe has not become. Not many. Yeah. And uh, it's a tough one, man. That's what capitalism's all about. Capitalism, it cuts both ways. Yeah, it's it's, and again, it's tough. So I mean, on the one hand of the dis- of the discussion, it's clear legally they don't have an obligation. They they've paid these guys. They got their paychecks for doing their work that they were contracted to do. But should there be a moral obligation? To look, if you're making a billion I mean, dollars, you got to share it around. I mean, the real question that you have to ask yourself is, is you, any human being, take $100, you know, and start thinking about the fact that, okay, wh- wherever you live, whatever your apartment is, like, if you like your apartment, not only do you pay rent, but should you pay the contractor that built your apartment? And of, of your $100, how much of that money are you going to dole out? If you have somebody that comes and cleans your apartment every week, you pay them, but should they get extra money because you really like living there and you love your clean environment? Like, you know, at the end of the day, you're going to be like, no, I pay people just fine. (laughs) I don't need to give them extra money of my hundred bucks because you're going to run out of it. Well, here's an interesting question, too. Like, we've been talking as a result of the pandemic. Obviously, there's the Scarlett Johansson lawsuit going on against Disney. And you and I have talked several times about how Hollywood both the studios and the agents now have to change the way they negotiate contracts now because the landscape has changed, right? Do you think now then that, you know, prior to 2008, you know, there's the odd comic book movie, but it wasn't really an industry. Today it is. Do you think today that should fundamentally change the way that artists and writers and creators need to negotiate their deals with these comic book companies, understanding that their work could at some point lead to a television show or a movie. Do you think this is changing the way they negotiate their contracts now? Yeah, absolutely. 
I mean, I mean, you know, there before 2008, there was the how many comic book movies were there, but now when you see a comic book universe, and and everything is up for grabs, like Marvel is 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 they're mining their entire universe that you've literally had hundreds, if not thousands, of creators work on over decades, half of the more than half of the 20th century. So, you know, you and, and now the 21st century, I mean, a lot of the age of Ultron story was not a, an exact adaptation, but at least they were inspired by that. And so Marvel, the new Captain Marvel that that we now have, the, the version of Carol Danvers is not the Carol Danvers from Avengers Annual 10, you know, uh, so there's there's all kinds of things that have come into play. So I think you have to and it makes I'll tell you something it makes negotiating a lot more difficult for for these projects because you never know and then do you carve yourself off part of that merchandising you know like if you create a character that suddenly they're making toys i mean i look at hot toys how many how much money how much it's unbelievable um look at the mandalorian you know favreau and filoni are basically creating a bunch of new characters that never existed before or they did exist like in the Clone Wars, now they're in live action, and and how's that going to work? And suddenly, is old Boba Fett does does a creator get money from that now? I mean, when J.J. Abrams was making the Force Awakens, he's like, "Yeah, let's give C three PO a red arm," because then we know that it was my C three PO. So whoever, whenever they sell a C three PO toy with a red <laughs> arm, or let's give the Millennium Falcon a rectangular dish on the top of it, because then they know. Well, that isn't their Millennium Falcon. That's my Millennium Falcon. And I'm going to carve off a little. Why does the Millennium Falcon have a rectangular dish? Doesn't matter. All you need to know is that's J.J. Abrams and Bad Robot's Millennium Falcon because we made a change to it. So they're getting paid. And that was shrewd and more power to them. Of course, why is Emperor Palpatine still alive? I don't know. And they, they didn't think we needed to know either. So, by the way, guys, once again, I would highly recommend going over to The Guardian. It's a it's a very good article. It, it'll make you think a lot. I think there's a lot of different ways to look at this. It is a complicated issue, and I think it'll challenge a lot of the ways that we think about things. I know I, I don't even have a position on this. Like I, I just I find it all very interesting. Go give the article a read and then come on back and jump on down to the comment section below and let us know your thoughts. All right, guys, with that down, let's move on to main topic number three, shall we? And our third main topic today gets submitted to us by Bellboy Baggins. I love that name. Who writes in, hey, John, I read last night on Deadline that AMC and Warner Brothers have a deal going into 2022 that all Warner Brothers films will have a theatrical window of 45 days. Obviously, this is good news for theater chains. How do you think it will affect the success of HBO Max in the streaming wars? And do you think we could see more deals like this soon? All right. Thanks a lot for sending that in, Bellboy. And yeah, you know, we are starting to get, you know, it was a, probably about a month or two ago. We started to see the beginning formations of what would the new theatrical and studio relationship landscape really start to look like as a few little deals started to get hammered out. But we are really now starting to see that coalesce into what we think is going to be the final picture of it. As AMC Theaters and Warner Brothers, one of the biggest studios out there, have now hammered down, Rob, what is kind of becoming now the stand, what we believe is now going to be the standard deal. 
And that deal is a 45-day theatrical exclusive window. This comes to us from the folks over at Deadline who write, AMC Entertainment Chairman and CEO Adam Aaron, who I don't have a very high opinion of. Anyway, Adam Aaron said Monday that the number one theater chain has inked a deal with Warner Brothers, ensuring a 45-day theatrical window for the studio's releases in 2022. Warner Brothers previously hammered out a 45-day 45 45-day theatrical window with number two circuit, Cineworld, and its U.S. counterpart, Regal Cinemas. These, AMC and Regal, basically represent the vast majority of theaters in the U.S., Earlier this year, as the Burbank, California studio was slammed by the industry and talent reps for its day-and-date theatrical HBO Max streaming model. So, essentially what we have here is basically this. The old model was a 90-day theatrical window, roughly. And that represents from the day a movie opens in theaters to when a movie can now go on to various forms of, of uh, home video. That has changed. Now, the studios have been fighting for a long time to get that window shrunk. And some wanted it too short, whatever. I personally thought it should have shrunk to 60 days. I, Me but too. 45, 45 is still acceptable. I think 45 still works. And that is actually starting to become the norm that's 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 what we're seeing every studio and everything is, is signing up for and, you know by the way universal signed that 15 day deal or something like that with amc theaters but that's pointless you can throw that out because i don't think any of the other the- theatrical chains or at least the major one like regal didn't sign that deal so universal can't really do anything but it looks like this 45 day window is going to become the norm i think this tells us a couple of things first and foremost um, it tells us that HBO Max did not nearly benefit as much as they were hoping they were going to benefit from this day and date release. I think they went into this 2021 thing saying we're going to release all our movies day and date on HBO Max in the theaters. They thought that this was going to be, or at least they hoped that this was going to be a spark that would cause a tsunami tidal wave of new subscribers coming in, and they're all going to rush in now and subscribe to HBO Max. And it didn't happen. It didn't happen. Uh, They've seen HBO Max grow. They they have seen it grow. But these numbers they thought that were going to be directly tied to putting these movies out Time and time again, they looked at the data and realized we're actually not getting a ton of new subscribers based on this model. And on top of that, we're losing out on the money that we would have made in the theaters. So it hasn't worked out so well for them. You know, one of the things that I've noticed, this is just something that struck me the other day, is like I was really excited to see James Gunn's Suicide Squad. There was anticipation. I watched the trailers. But there's something very anticlimactic when it's just suddenly available on HBO Max. Yeah. You know, when you go to a theater, John, it's a thing. Like you have to, in your mind, it's like, okay, you have to prepare yourself. You have to leave the house. You know, you have to do something. But if it's just, oh, it's midnight, it's available. Like tonight, what if's going to be on? Okay, great. And I, I, I think that, the hype machine for movies is something I didn't realize how much I needed it. <laughs> like 
I need to want to leave the house. To, I mean, it, it ups my excitement for movies. And when they're just there, it's like, eh, I'll get to it. I mean, and, and, and yet going to a movie opening weekend, you want to be a part of that conversation. And I think that ultimately when things are day and date, they're killing that. They're actually changing something in the fabric of what it means to be a movie fan. Something existential that I don't like. I don't like that I can just be like, oh, I'll watch it. Sure. And and that excitement has what's carried me through the last 45 years of my life. And if it's gone, do movies mean the same thing? Or is it truly just another piece of content? Yeah, well, look, and, and here's what the studios are starting to figure out. Like, I hear from a lot of people that say, well, you know, John, I, I really like just being able to sit at home like I do every freaking day of the week because I have no life. I like being able to just sit at home in the same couch that I sat in yesterday and the day before that, right. watching the same TV. I watched this a day before. Anyway, I like doing that. And that's cool. You People would like what they like. But what they're not looking at is, okay, that's great. You can also say, I love getting free Lamborghinis. Okay, cool. But the reality is Lamborghini is going to go out of business real fast because Lamborghini ain't going to make any money. But I like getting Lamborghinis for free. Cool. But it's not good business for Lamborghini. What Disney and Warner Brothers with HBO Max and all that kind of stuff are discovering is they're not making money. They're losing money. Every Every day, every week, the math, we look at the math, the numbers that come out. They're losing money. They're losing money. This isn't making money. And it's great that we can say, but man, I really like being able to sit at home and just watch it. Okay, cool. But understand this. You're going to get less great movies every year. You're going to get these studios that are going to put less and less effort into these movies because they know they don't need to put effort into the movies because you got you subscribed anyway. I mean, that's great that we can say, I, I-, I like just being able to sit at home. Cool, cool. But just understand that the day of getting... You know, a $275 million Avengers Endgame movie are over. They're over. And when you cry about, remember when we used to have these great movies? Well, that's why you don't get them anymore. And that day is coming. You're going to get, we talked about this the other day, like Netflix gets away with putting out so much garbage movies because once, maybe twice a year, they'll actually put out a decent one to kind of, cover over and camouflage the fact that they also put out 40 to 50 absolutely terrible movies every year. And that's exactly where this is all heading because the studios, Warner brothers is realizing we lost money doing this day and date release thing. We lost lots of money doing this day and date releasing. We didn't get the benefits at all that we thought we were going to get. Disney plus is thinking we're going to be pulling in 150 to $200 million on premium access fees per movie. Guess what? Even their biggest one never got halfway to that with uh, with uh, Black Widow. Never even got halfway to that. It's been a rude awakening for these guys. And there's just not simply a model for them to make money. Unlike the model of what Warner Brothers is now entering into, theatrical window, we make a bunch of money. Then POV sales, we make lots of money. And then it becomes the exclusive home for that place on our HBO Max service to encourage subscriptions and things. And everybody wins. But the direction everything is going in, 
it's it's dark days ahead for movie fans. I think I think I really do think it's dark days ahead for movie fans because this model that a lot of people seem to want is ultimately going to destroy the industry. It's going to destroy the quality of films we get. It's going to destroy the amount of effort that artists are able to put into these things, the resources they're given to make these things. It just is. And we know that because we already see it happening. We already see it happening. But so it's, it's disappointing. What do you what do you think? OK, what's really interesting is. We all know that back in the late 60s, early 70s, the studio system was dying. And it was all of these young maverick filmmakers, whether it was Lucas, Coppola, Scorsese, Dennis Hopper making Easy Rider, that all of these young upstart film, Easy Riders, Raging Bulls, if you read that book, came in and made some really innovative, hard-hitting movies that challenged the studio status quo. Maybe, maybe that that's kind of what's going to happen here, that that with the business contracting and no one's going to be spending $200 million on movies anymore, maybe going back to making $30 million, $45 million, maybe $60 million films will give us a whole new wave of really innovative, really interesting movies because the business necessarily must contract. And in a way, I mean, if you want to look at it in a hopeful manner, that they're going to have to step, the streamers are going to have to, it's it's spending $200 million on the next Martin Scorsese film with Leonardo DiCaprio might not necessarily be the way to go. And maybe, maybe this kind of contraction will spur innovation and we'll get some really great movies the same way we did in the early, early to mid 70s. I don't know if that's going to happen, but does the business, can we really sustain $200 million movies? Do we need that? I mean, isn't I, one of my favorite things, the most entertaining thing I've seen in a couple of years was the Queen's Gambit or Mayor of Easttown. I know these are series and not movies, but I mean, these are things, these are compelling dramas. And if we could go back to making two hour movies that are as compelling and, or well-written as Mayor of Easttown or the Queen's Gambit, that might be a good thing for all of us. All right. The Maybe. problem becomes that's all you're going to get. I mean, that right. that's the problem. It, it will no longer be because today we are getting Queen's Gambit. Today we are getting the Green Knight. Today we are getting, you know, mm -hmm. uh, a quiet place. Today we are getting those. And we will still continue to get those kinds of films. The problem is it's going to all become the mid to low budget stuff. So, yeah. like, let's go look back at 2019 for a second. Where we had, what, 11? I think $11 billion films at the box office in 2019, the last year, full year we had before the pandemic hit, right? So I think we will still get things like The Green Knight, for sure. Absolutely, and I look forward to those. But we're not going to get Avengers Endgames anymore. It's just not going to happen. There's no return on investment for the studios to want to put that kind of money or resources into a film because they don't need to. When it's theatrical, they need to because the more they put in, the more they're going to get out and they're going to get a big payday from it. Not so much with streaming. They're just not. So forget Avengers Endgame, Spider-Man Far From Home. Forget that. Toy Story 4, like like the, the brilliance of some of these Pixar films, they're going to disappear. Like when you just look at these types of films, you got to understand these are going to become, whereas in 2019, they started to become more regular for us. They're going to almost disappear. 
because there's simply no economic model that makes it make sense for a studio to want to bother making those types of films when instead they could spend $21 million on the latest detective movie, which could still be really great, but it's going to have a direct impact on the variety of films that we get. The, the type of spectacle stuff that we like to get every once in a while to mix it. You know, every once in a while, we want a good bowl of ice cream to go along with our broccoli, Rob. I love, I like the good broccoli. I like the broccoli, but I also want a bowl of ice cream every once in a while. You know what I'm saying? Well, yeah, but you know, Joker made a billion dollars on yes. a $65 million spend. I mean, I think, you know what I think what, and I think what's interesting. Yeah. I mean, uh, yes. Joker kind of riffed on, king of comedy and taxi driver and all that but but the idea is you know i think the real problem with our studio system now and the people that control the industry is they're always swinging for the fences yeah. you know and if, if this at the studio level it's all about ips it's all about getting that billion dollar gross when what happened to getting on base every time like you know i look at a guy like jason blum you know, and he's starting to move more toward that IP exorcist, $400 million. But he goes and he'll make a movie like Lee Wannell's Invisible Man for $8 million bucks, and he'll make $100 million worldwide. I'm like, yo, I mean, let Jason Blum make 10 movies for less than $100 million. And more people and should follow he, that example. You know, that's what I'm thinking. And and if you had, what if each studio had five Jason Blums? I mean, the thing is, there's only one Jason Blum. That's really hard to do. But 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 there are people out there that I think have never got the opportunity to get that way. And maybe the studios and the studios have done nothing to foster new talent. They they wait. They're like, oh, we got to wait till the next indie darling comes out, and I'll pluck them from obscurity and throw them on a franchise property. When really, what they should be doing is nurturing careers. But there's not there's not a billion dollars in doing that. But maybe the industry as a wake up call needs to start changing the way it does business and no longer. I mean, making shitty movies is not a good way to do it either. That we've got to step up our game, that everybody has to step up our game and figure out like I would be looking at Jason Blum's model and think if I was a studio to stay relevant, man, I'd like to have a cadre of guys and girls and however you identify directors going out and making movies like what Lee Wanell did, you know, or what the sham hammers done since he's come back to town, you know, I mean, do that. Yeah. I guess one of my, the thing I'm concerned about here is that you said making shitty movies isn't the way to do it, but Netflix has made an entire business model out of it. I mean, and Netflix is our Netflix seems to be our crystal ball glimpse into the future of this. Netflix's model is what they're going to go towards, which is make these big looking, like let's take Gunpowder Milkshake, big looking kind of movies that are actually quite low budgeted for for the type of movie that it is. And they didn't need to put a lot of energy or effort into making it very good because they didn't, they know they don't need it to be good. You just got to keep cranking that out. And they're making a big business model out of it. I was really to be honest, I was really disappointed because the director of that film made Such a great a Israeli yeah. movie called Big Bad Wolves. And I'm like, I was really looking forward to it. Now, I'll tell you something. There's a movie coming out called Cop Shop. I don't know if you've seen the trailer for this, but it's Gerard Butler and um, Frank Grillo. And it's Joe Carnahan's new movie. Now, I'm a huge Joe Carnahan fan. He's made 
good movies and great movies. And but I I actually met him when he made his first movie, Blood, Guts, Bullets, and Octane. And I saw the trailer for Cop Shop the other day, and I'm like, if a guy like Joe Carnahan is going back to his low budget indie roots with people like Gerard Butler and Frank Grillo or whatever, and making some insane battle in a police station movie, I'm like, okay. I'd like to see more of those movies, you know, and hopefully it's good. I have no idea if it's good or not. I just saw the trailer. I had no idea Joe Carnahan was even making that movie, but God bless you, sir, because I've quite enjoyed the movies you make. So. All right, guys. Anyway, the question for you is, it looks like Warner Brothers and AMC are now formulating the, what's going to become the industry standard now. They're going back to a full theatrical model. We'll see how that works out with a different window now, 45 days instead of 90 days. I think that that window still works. It's getting kind of short, but it still works. It's going to be interesting to see how this all unfolds as we go through 2022 and we start approaching 2023 and to see what kind of changes happen then as well. As we are at a very pivotal time in the history of movies and things like that and how they're yep. going to be made and how they're going to be. And it's going to be really interesting to see how this all develops over the next year or so. Anyway, guys, what do you think of this deal? Jump on down into the comments section below and let us know your thoughts. Okay, guys. With that all down, let's move over and start taking your live comments and questions, shall we? Now, once again, if you want to get a live comment or question read on this show or an upcoming companion video, simply go down to the description of this video and you'll see a tip link. Click on that or you could enter it in manually at www.streamelements.com slash movieblogtv slash tip. You'll be getting your comment or question read on a show if it's appropriate for a show. And of course, you'll be supporting our channel at the same time and all of us here involved with the show. Thank you guys so much for your support. Okay, guys, with that down, let's get into your live question, shall we? And we're going to get things started off here with Flatulence Man. And Flatulence Man writes, <laughs> I have no problem with acknowledging that movie tastes are subjective, as is all art. However, when I see a team of online movie reviewers, I won't name names here, pan movies like Hacksaw Ridge, Les Mis, and Darkest Hour, it's hard not to see elitist snobbery. Well, I mean, but that's the whole test, flatulence man, of do you really understand the subjectivity of film? Now, look, all these movies you just listed, I love. I mean, I love Hacksaw Ridge. I love Les Mis. I love Darkest Hour. These, to me, these are all great films. Absolutely. But it's that's not going to just because that's the way they hit me. That doesn't mean it's going to hit this other people the same way. And, you know, like, Rob, here's a good example. Yesterday, which movie we were talking about? We were talking about The Counselor, the Ridley Scott oh, movie, yeah. The Counselor, right? Like, that is a movie to me that is truly one of the worst films of the past 15 years. But Rob, like, we were talking about something, and Rob mentioned, man, Ridley Scott did this movie called The Counselor, and I love that movie. And I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Are you joking? No, I love that movie, right? It hits us in different ways. We watch a piece of art. It hits us and we have a certain experience with it. And I thought it was terrible. Rob thought it was great. And that's the way it's going to be. So you, you got to overcome this temptation because one of the most toxic things in fandom is when we look at somebody else's opinion and go, you have a garbage opinion or you have bad taste. Shut up. Their tastes are just different from yours. Their life experience is different from yours. And so when they encounter a piece of art, they experience it differently than you do. It doesn't mean their tastes are bad. They may be different from mine. When, when you hear somebody saying, You're, their you got bad taste, what they're really saying is, my tastes are what the standards of good taste are. And since your tastes aren't the same as mine, that means you have bad taste. Fuck you. 
That is not how art works. That is not how this thing works. We experience it differently. And I get to, it, it, it's great for me because look, I start look at the counselor again. I mean, Rob didn't change my mind on it, but hearing Rob express like what made it work for him, it makes me want to take a peek at it and it helps me better understand my own take on the movie as well. Anyway, Rob, what do you, what do you say to that? Well, you know me, you and I kind of part ways on, on if everything, if all art is subjective. Now, I do think, like, if you look at the AFI top 100 films, for the most part, there's a general consensus throughout cinema history what movies are, are great. I think the great, like, I don't think anybody argues that Raiders of the Lost Ark is a great movie. Oh, you dude, know? I I know somebody that hates the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Movies. Uh, right, there's always going <laughs> to look. There's people that hate every single movie. So I I do think though that there are people that obviously, I think people's taste individually is subjective. Everybody's taste and things that they like is absolutely subjective. But I do think there's things that, for the most part, the general consensus is like. For instance, I think Hacksaw Ridge is a good movie. I think it's really well made. It's really well acted. The it's 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 a film that if you are a movie critic, I would expect movie critics for the most part to recognize certain levels of excellence in films. And if somebody just rejects that cuz they're like I don't I only watch comic book movies for instance. If somebody said that to me, I'd be like then I can't trust your opinion because so much of you should know something about all of cinema if you're going to call yourself a reviewer. Now, if you only want to review comic book movies, that's fine. But if you're going to go review, like, a couple of my favorite movies, the three A's, All About Eve, Almost Famous, and All That Jazz, if you go review those films and you come back and you say, those three movies sucked, I'd say you need to brush up on your cinema history and understand what makes a story good. And Because I do think that critics do have a responsibility to understand the art form of cinema. Now, John, I don't think The Counselor is for everybody. I would freely admit that it's an acquired taste. <laughs> and, sure. and so, and so I, 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 think, I think critics need to understand that sometimes, like I love the movie Star Crash. It's my favorite Italian Star Wars ripoff. It has Marjo Gortner and David Hasselhoff and Joe Spinell and Caroline Monroe. Would I ever tell anybody it's a great movie? Never. Do I love it? Yes. And I think that that people are discerning critics understand that difference. I, and they're able to look at movies that they might not. It's not maybe that movie's not in their wheelhouse, but they can at least recognize whether things are good or bad. And at the same time, I think a movie like The Counselor is is, is not in a lot of people's wheelhouses. So I wouldn't ever say to you, John, well, how can you not like The Counselor? Because I know very well how you cannot like the counselor, but despite all of that, I love it. Right, but I, but again, I would I would counter that by saying you're making an assumption there that if you thought a movie was good, that if somebody didn't like it, that means they don't understand film and they don't understand film history. Oh, no, they no. need to brush up. Like I I mean, like for I'm instance, not saying that though. But but look, when you watch Citizen Kane, if somebody says to me. Oh, that movie's boring. It sucks. I mean, that might be your personal opinion, but if you're a movie critic and you're out there being an online pundit, you should know something about the history of cinema and why Citizen Kane uh, has a certain place in cinema history. Same with Hitchcock's Vertigo or these movies that are always at the top of the list. Like you might not dig them because you're only watching comic book movies. But if you're going to be out there reviewing cinema, 
I think you have an obligation to at least your viewers to have some sense of where art history and right. cinema history comes from. But you from. can have that and still think the movie's terrible. You can. I, I mean, and, and that's the point, right? Like the whole the whole thing to me about it, this is the argument I always come back to. If you're going to say something is objectively true, you have to be able to empirically prove it. And there's just no, and now I know your argument is in the future, we might be able to develop brain scans that will empirically prove things. But, but I mean, I think, right now you can't do that. But I think history, though, bears certain things out. Like, like I think if you're an astute connoisseur or consumer of storytelling, I think anybody would be hard-pressed not to be moved by the Shawshank Redemption. And there's people that might not like it. But I think if you understand or you really love storytelling, you know, you watch a movie like that and you kind of, I, I don't think I would trust anybody that calls themselves a film fan and doesn't like Shawshank Redemption. Oh, dude, you're talking to one of the biggest Shawshank Redemption fans in the world, but I disagree with that. I mean, like, it's for me, like a lot of people I know think spicy food tastes great. It but does. If, <laughs> <laughs> but you put, you put, a drop of something spicy into something I'm eating. Dude, I'm the biggest wuss in the world. I am pathetic. When it, I mean, I will roll on the floor. I'm like, what is this horrendous but, shite from hell that you have put into my mouth? This tastes or That doesn't mean I have bad taste. It just means my taste is different than yours. But I, but I would also say that you actually have a physiological aversion to spicy food. Like it doesn't sit well with you. And that, that even goes beyond opinion into, because I have friends that can't, you know, they can't deal with spicy food like their 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 physical makeup doesn't allow them. They'll never enjoy it, just like you said. And and I think, though, that that's not so much opinion as it is just a fact. You just don't like spicy, spicy food. I don't think that makes you some kind of culinary Luddite. But that's my point. Know? I think that extends beyond the physiological because, like, you get two people who stand and see a certain shade of purple. And one person says, I think that's a great color. And somebody says, I think that's a terrible color. It's. It's 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 it completely subjective to the individual makeup of who we are. And there's no there's no objective thing that says that this particular number four seven B color of purple is a great color. Well, it depends who you ask, and I think the same. But anyway, we've been going down this thing a little bit too much. I know. All, sorry. All I, would, I would say, I would say, oh, I just love discussing this stuff with you, Rob. But I would say to Flash and Sman, whoever it was that was saying that they don't like Hacksaw Ridge, Lay Miz, and Darkest Hour, while I obviously disagree with those people. I, I don't think you should divulge, uh, divulge to name calling because they didn't like the movies you liked. I, I, I just, I still feel that way. I really, really do. At any rate, let's move on here. Uh, Luke one, two, three, four writes, I rewatched your making of thoughts on walks video. Oh, that was a while ago. I still, so I did a, uh, and I will get back to making thoughts on walks guys. I, I will get back to it. It's just been crazy. But anyway, the one thoughts on walks I did was basically what gear and techniques I use to make thoughts on walks videos. So anyway, thanks for shouting back to that one, Luke. I rewatched your making of thoughts on walks video and in it, you said you use Luma fusion. That's right. On your iPad pro. Do you still use that program? And do you use any photo editing programs? I just got an iPad air four. So that's why I'm asking. Thanks. Okay. So, um, on the iPad, there is a piece of software because you can't run Adobe Premiere and you can't run DaVinci Resolve and you can't run for some reason, you can't run Final Cut on an, on, uh, an iPad Pro, even though an I, the newest iPad Pros 
are far more powerful than most people's desktop computers. It's crazy, Rob, how powerful these new iPad Pros are. They're nuts. They got the M1 chips in them. They're crazy. But there is a software called LumaFusion. And let me see if I can bring it up here. I'm not sure that I can. But LumaFusion is a video editing piece of software specifically made uh, for the Mac. Uh, sorry, specifically made for iPads and mobile devices. So I think you can also use like LumaFusion uh, on your phone, if I'm not mistaken. I think you could even use it on your phone if you wanted to. So it is honestly a fabulous piece of software, Rob. Absolutely fabulous. I have put Canon 4K footage literally four layers of Canon 4K footage on my eight core i9, 32 gigs of RAM, 2070 NVIDIA card computer. And every once in a while in playback, it struggles with it a little bit, Rob. It, it, sure. It'll struggle because that's a heavy, heavy, heavy codec. That's a heavy, heavy, heavy workload. I've put that same four layers of Canon 4K footage on the iPad and it fucking cuts through it like butter. Like absolute butter. It is wonderful. And here's the best part, Rob. It's cheap as hell. I think it was like 40 bucks. And it, it is a it is a beautiful, I mean, is it DaVinci Resolve? No. Is it Adobe Premiere Pro? No. But I'm telling you, it's not too far behind. And for a mobile device for, as a video editor, it is fabulous. Fabulous. So it's great. Now, you're asking about a um, a photo editor. Uh, the best one that is most... Now, uh, Adobe is putting out like a mobile version of uh, Adobe Photoshop. I use Photoshop every day. I've tried using it on my iPad and their mobile device just isn't quite, isn't quite there. It, it, it's just not quite as good. So what I use instead is another piece of software called Affinity Photo. So if you've got an iPad or if you want a, a different type of mobile device, there and it, it, I don't think it works on Android tablets, but it does work on iPad. It's called Affinity Photo. And it does, Rob, I'm not kidding, about 98% of what Photoshop does. And mm. in some ways... It's even more intuitive than Photoshop. Like I'm, I'm still a Photoshop guy. I am still a Photoshop guy, but I'm telling you, and by the way, Rob, there is also desktop versions of, of affinity photo, and you can move your, your projects back and forth between your iPad on your iPad version of affinity photo. And by the way, you can open Photoshop files in affinity photo. I can bring my Photoshop files right into affinity photo and do work on the go. So what I used to do on thoughts on walks is I would take my, like I, I, I've used many different cameras over the years doing thoughts on walks right now. My mobile camera of choice is this GoPro nine. Uh, this GoPro hero nine is what I use. So this is that. So what I would do is I'd go out on a long walk. I would film with the GoPro, whatever camera I was using at the time. And then I would arrive at my destination, usually an outdoor restaurant. I used to like going to this hookah lounge in Burbank. So I had this great outdoor restaurant. I like their food. And I would hang out there, crack open my iPad, move the video footage on there, edit it in, um, in LumaFusion, then open up Affinity Photo, do a quick thumbnail for it and upload, edit it. And by the way, Rob, oh my God, the render times on the iPad, 
crazy fast, crazy fast. So I would render it out, upload it all from sitting there. Now, the pandemic hit and I no longer had places to go to because I didn't just want to go out for a walk and come back home. I like to go for a long walk to somewhere with a destination. And I would walk, film, get to my destination, sit outside at, at a restaurant, whatever, some kind of lounge, whatever, and then do my work from there and spend the evening doing that. But then the pandemic hit and almost everything shut down. And so I really haven't had anywhere to go. Now, things are starting to change and hopefully I'll be able to do these thoughts on walks again more. But I tell you, listen, I am, Rob, you know, I am an Android guy. Even though my wife works for Apple, don't tell Apple that. I am an Android guy. I really, I, I have been an iPhone user. I have been an iPhone uh, uh, owner. And I'm just telling you this, this is getting older now, but this is the uh, Samsung Galaxy Note 20, uh, Galaxy Note 20 Ultra, whatever you call it. Best phone I've ever owned. I'm, a, I'm totally an Android guy. But for tablets, guys, I'm telling you what, um, the iPad is the way to go for tablets. So I have a PC desktop. I have a Mac laptop, I have an Android phone, but I have an iPad tablet. <laughs> so I am totally, I guess, platform agnostic, Rob. I guess that's the best way to put it, platform agnostic. So that's how I would decide. But so yes, uh, I highly, highly recommend going back to these things again. Um, if you've got an iPad, LumaFusion, and by the way, you don't even have to have the iPad Pro. Like the most recent iPad Air, super powerful too. If you can get a Pro, get the Pro. But an iPad Air, super powerful too. So I would recommend LumaFusion for video editing, and I would recommend Affinity Photo for image editing. And uh, good luck on that, and uh, I hope it goes well for you. All right, next up. Sorry, I, Rob, you know me. I get, when somebody asks tech questions, I get all excited. I love talking I love tech. It. I love, love talking tech. All right, uh, next up. Luke1234 writes, I rewatched, oh, sorry, that was the one we just did. All right, Paul Starguy writes, one, Taika Waititi is writing a script. Oh, yeah, I heard about this. Taika Waititi is writing a script for a live-action Flash Gordon movie. Originally, it was going to be animated. Producer John Davis stated, he has the most fantastically interesting vision for this movie. It harkens in a very interesting way to the original uh, conception from the comics. I like the 1980 film and the awesome Queen soundtrack. What are your thoughts? Now, Rob, out of the two of us here, you are the bigger Flash Gordon fan. But this <laughs> this is interesting because I remember talking last year about the fact that Taika was developing and writing for a Flash Gordon animated thing. And then yeah. last week word came out that it's actually going to be live action now. And they're moving in that direction. What do you think about that? Well, it's interesting because, you know, there was an animated Flash Gordon series. I think Filmation made it and it was it was serious minded. It's really good. I want to say it came out around the same time as as the animated film. But the I mean, the live action movie, Lorenzo Semple Jr., who wrote the script for Flash Gordon, like worked on the Batman 66 TV show. And I I thought that the camp nature of all of it. And the way it was filmed and the way that uh, Mike Hodges directed it uh, was was a perfect way to approach Like I, whether it's Danger Diabolic or Barbarella, these European takes on, com I mean, those are European comic books, but I really enjoyed Flash Gordon. You know, it came out Christmas of, of 1980. The Empire Strikes Back had come out summer, well, May of 1980. And it was, to me, it was a really interesting, fun counterpoint to Star Wars. 
and I I loved Flash Gordon, and I have I have friends that hate it. Talk about sub- <laughs> the subjectivity of movies. They're like, this movie's trash. I mean, I'm like, no, no, no. It's exactly the way it was supposed to be. It's not like it wasn't supposed to be a camp classic. No, it was exactly a camp classic. It was it was made exactly the way that they wanted to make it. And I I find it to be a delightful film. Now, what is Taika Waititi going to do? It's interesting. Is he going to go back and try and reinvent Flash Gordon and have that serious bent the way the animated show did back in 1980? Or is he going to try and make a camp classic? And I'm like, I don't know, maybe a hybrid of the two, because look, I think one of my favorite genre things ever is what we do in the shadows. Oh, to me, to me, what we do in the shadows and Shaun of the dead and an American werewolf in London are the three, the triptych of, of amazing comedic, horror films that work both as kind of horror genre pieces and as comedies. And I, I, you know, I guess he could bring that sensibility to flash Gordon. I would love to see what he's going to do with it. Um, so I'm in, you flash. know, uh, you know, it's funny. It's, I, I remember a conversation. I don't know if anybody today, and I saw a little music, a mini doc on this before. It's true. I don't know if anybody today, uh, would know Aerosmith. I don't know anybody today would be talking about Aerosmith or anything like that. If it wasn't for Run DMC in the eighties uh, coming out and putting out their version of Walk This Way that had you know uh, Aerosmith back in it, and all of a sudden they were on the forefront again, and and then they went on to have an even better second half of their career than they had a first yeah. half. When I think about Flash Gordon, it's like I wonder how many people today still talk about Flash Gordon if it wasn't for Ted. Because remember, it was after Ted came out that all of a because honestly, before Ted came out, I very rarely, whether it was at AMC or anything else, I very rarely heard anybody talk or mention Flash Gordon. After Ted, I it's almost like weekly, I hear people <laughs> talking about Flash Gordon. It's, it's kind of neat. Like, do you think that might have anything to do with the resurgence and popularity of it? Oh, I think probably because I think there's a lot of people that never saw Flash Gordon you know, and, and as a result of Ted, because I, like I've always said, John, I, I think pop culture has a half-life of about 20 years. Mm. There's very few things that last beyond 20 years. And I think, you know, there's new generations born every day. So I, I think about it when Ted came out in the, or came out what, like 10 years ago or something. Um, if you were born in 1990, like, would you have ever gone, you, you would have been 10 and 2000 why would you have ever watched flash gordon really right you know and and because you're you're looking at a movie that was old you know 20 years old or whatever and and i think that and there's so much content how do you how do you catch up with that so i think that there's a whole group of people that that did see flash gordon for the first time and then obviously queen you know you you can't if you like queen and queen's had a lot of staying power you have to discover Flash Gordon, if you go back and you're you're a fan of Queen, and of course built. also the Highlander, right, right, wants to live yeah. forever. I mean okay. that song still, and they use that song in uh, Bohemian Rhapsody. Yeah, so uh, I mean it's you go back and you watch. It's funny because to me, Highlander and Flash Gordon make a great double feature because of Queen. Yeah, you know because they're they're both. They both are over the top in their own way. 
And I, I really adore both of those movies. You can't go wrong putting some Queen soundtrack in your movie. Just can't go wrong with it. All right, uh, next up, Tyson Ackerstrom writes, Hey, John, on your recommendation, I just finished Warrior. Awesome. I just finished Warrior, and holy crap, what an amazing show. I'm now a huge Andrew Koji fan. Having seen Snake Eyes and feeling a certain way about it, I'm curious if G.I. Joe would fare better as a series. Your thoughts. All right, so first of all, if you guys aren't watching Warrior, so... Yeah, he's just the the show is amazing. It's on HBO. You absolutely have to go and see it. I mean, it's phenomenal. The action is great. The acting in it is wonderful. It's it's kind of like Into the Badlands meets Game of Thrones. There's great, you know, intrigue. The character depth is fantastic. All this kind of stuff. It's absolutely wonderful. You gotta check it out. Now, as far as um as far as you know, would would G.I. Joe have worked better as a series? No. Because none of the problems of None of the problems with uh, Snake Eyes had anything to do with it feeling rushed. Nothing about Snake Eyes felt rushed. Nothing about Snake Eyes felt like, oh, if only they had time. No, no, no. The problems with Snake Eyes was that they made their hero a complete asshole that you couldn't get behind at all. And they shot the action in such a way that there was no way you could possibly perceive what was going on. So what's supposed to be a fun action movie, they took away the action. What's supposed to be a movie about this hero, they made him the most unlikable character in the movie, and you actually preferred the quote-unquote villain, where Storm Shadow was actually the good guy of the movie. Um, if they had done to say, if they had the last minute said, you know what, how about instead of shooting this as a movie, let's do it as a show, it just would have been prolonged shittery. The shittery just would have been taken and elongated over eight episodes because their problem was in their concept and their execution had nothing to do with it being movie format or TV format. And anyway, that's my, my take. If you're telling a shitty story, it's a shitty story. It doesn't matter what format you're telling it in. I don't know, Rob, you know, what do you think? Do you think if they had done this snake eyes as a series instead, it might've come turned out better. <laughs> Based on what we've seen of it. Probably not. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I, you know, I, I, it may be because they would have had to plot out, an arc more, I think, and, and take it somewhere where it was maybe more satisfying for the audience. Um, and at least they would have shot the action probably on sticks or maybe on a uh, dolly. So it wouldn't have been so shaky. Um, but yeah, I, it maybe would have been better. I think, you know what? Maybe I think yes, because they would have had to step up their game. They would have been like, okay, if we're going to do a series, we have like into the badlands is a good example. I mean, that's a, that's a fun series. Yeah. I and, enjoyed that. And yeah, it's like, we got to make it at least as good as that or, or look at, look at gangs of London. You know, there's a lot of great action extended series out there that you, you need to live up to. So probably would have been better if it was a series. Uh, I disagree. I think once you start off with bad concept, it doesn't matter if you make it. Well, yeah, but they would have had, they couldn't have been bad. What I'm saying is they would have had to done a better job from the get go, from the inception of it all. I don't know. I think there was a lot of reasons that they needed to do a good job on it with the amount of money they put into this thing. And they're trying to launch a franchise with it. I, I think they had all the motivation in the world. They just, they just shit the bed. They just totally shit the bed on it. But I mean, hey, look, there are some people out there who enjoyed Snake Eyes, and that's awesome. I'm jealous. I wish I did too. But yeah, from my perspective, it's a complete shit show. Oh, God, that movie was disappointing. Okay, uh, next up, 
Oops, we lost our uh, screen here. Give me one second. Next up, we go over to... Who are we going to next? That was uh, Tyson, I believe. Yes. Uh, Armando writes, Have you seen the Korean drama Kingdom on Netflix? Zombies in Korea during the 1600s. Definitely a must-watch. Yeah, we've talked about that several times on the show. It's a really neat idea. It takes the zombie genre... But it puts it into a period piece kind of idea and it mixes a little bit of political intrigue with with a zombie apocalypse kind of thing where the emperor has actually become a zombie, but they can't let the people know he's become a zombie. Anyway, it's really interesting. If you haven't had a chance to check this out, my friend Corey got me turned on to it. Um, then, yes, you got to you got to uh, check it out. It's really, really quite good. Good recommendation, Armando. Next up. Great Scott Bailey writes. Uh, John, tech topic. I dabbled with the Elgato Wave 3. That is a microphone, by the way, that Elgato puts out. Uh, and their mixer software today. And I have to say, as intuitive as the system is, I have a newfound appreciation for overcoming those pesky multiple sound source issues we have during production time. Listen, I have been... I need to use... My microphone is a Rode Procaster. And I love this microphone, and so I use it. Now, there is a USB mic put out by Elgato. And God, Elgato makes a lot of great streaming stuff. Rob, they make the cameras you just bought. Yep. Um, they make the Elgato Face Cam, which is a fabulous webcam, best webcam ever made in history. And they just came out. But they also make a mic, a very good USB mic called the Elgato Wave. Now, they have the Elgato Wave 1 and the Elgato Wave 3. Where's Elgato Wave 2? I don't know. They never made it to. They got the Elgato Wave 1 and the Elgato Wave 3. They roughly look the same. They basically do the same thing with a few minor differences. What is key about the Elgato Wave is that it comes with a piece of software that will only work with that microphone. You try to load it up and use it with another microphone, it won't work. And it allows, it has great things like clip guarding, which is one of the big problems a lot of YouTubers have is clipping in their audio, but it has clip guarding and it allows you to use every audio source on your computer as its own meter, which is very difficult to do. There's a whole bunch of convoluted ways you can do it, but it just puts it right there. Like if you're running Spotify, it'll give you your own Spotify leveler. If you're running a YouTube video, it'll give you a YouTube leveler. It'll just, it's very, very intuitive and very cool. If I could use a USB mic, that's the one I would use. But I'm very committed to to this particular microphone that I think is just really good. But um, but yeah, if you're looking to get a good USB mic, the Elgato Wave is a really good one to get because that software, Greg, that it comes with is really, really game-changing. But again, it only works with that one microphone. All right, uh, next up, we've got Atoshi Victor who writes, one, I went to see UFC 256 or 265 at the Toyota Center. Nice. And it was a crazy experience. I loved the song fight. That was a really crazy fight. Didn't think he would win that one, although I still think Kenny should have been chosen. I disagree. Uh, it sucked to see uh, Lewis lose at home, uh, but Gagne earned that victory. It's going to be great to see Nagano versus Gagne fight in Paris, hopefully. Also, who do you think can be a mobile guy? Who do you think can be a mobile guy like Gagne in the heavyweight division? can be a mobile guy or beat a mobile guy. Anyway, it's a great time to start watching UFC. Nunez is going to fight anytime soon. Thanks. Well, remember, Amanda Nunez was supposed to fight on this card, but she got COVID. So she was supposed to be on this card. So yeah, they'll they'll get her back up and fighting again uh, as soon as they can. Look, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this just to say this. I was so thoroughly disappointed in Lewis's performance in that fight against Gagne. He didn't, he did not show up to fight. He didn't show up to fight. 
And it's just that simple. He didn't show up the fight. The dude threw 17 strikes in two rounds. Whereas I think Gagne clocked in at like 60 or 70 or something like that. He was so outclassed, but it, it wasn't just outclassed. He is a knockout artist. Like Black Beast is a knockout artist and he barely threw. And he was just in constant retreat. He was just, he didn't show up to fight. And it's, it's okay if he goes in there and lays his heart on the line and gets beat. That's okay. But I was really, really disappointed in just seeing how little heart he had. Um, he had such little heart in that fight. It, it, it was disappointing to see. And Gagne versus Naganu is going to be a great fight. I, th- I still think Francis wins that fight, but it's going to be a great fight. All right. Uh, next up, uh, Num Num writes, do you feel that Bloodsport looks similar to Taskmaster? Um, no. I mean, two arms, two legs, and a face mask. Of <laughs> uh, I, 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 other than that, no. I didn't really think there was any. I didn't. I didn't. At, at at least for me, Rob. Maybe it's different for other people. But for me, I never once looked at Bloodsport and thought, "Wow, that looks a lot like Taskmaster." I mean, I, I right. never thought that personally. Did you? No, and and uh, you know, I despite what people might think, I thought the design of Taskmaster was on point. And, and, uh, oh, yeah, look good. Sure. Yeah. I, I didn't think that, uh, looked like Bloodsport. All right. Next up, we go over to Dangerous. I mean, you Deep. know what? Can I take that back? Yes. I take understand. I, I, I think it was the helmets, the same way that both helmets kind of had that lower bone right. protrusion kind of thing. So, I would say that, yes, I think that was an interesting coincidence or choice, maybe. So I could see that comparison being made. All right. Uh, next up, we've got Dangerous D who writes, I love the Suicide Squad, but I saw box office numbers. It says it underwhelmed. Do you think it being shown on HBO Max had something to do with it? Well, obviously, yes. After seeing film, would you want to see a Suicide Squad versus Justice League? And what villains would you use? No, I think that would be a dumb idea. I'm not I'm not going to lie. I've been asked that before. It would be an absolutely ridiculous idea for the movie. Because there's not a single member of the Justice League who can't take out the entire Suicide Squad by themselves. I mean, Flash takes out the Suicide Squad quickly superman takes out the suicide squad quickly wonder woman takes out the suicide squad quickly aquaman takes out the suicide squad quickly uh cyborg takes out the suicide squad quickly batman took out the suicide squad before they even knew the fight started so uh no i don't want that at all and as far as the hbo max thing yes Uh, if you go back to our video yesterday rob and i laid out nine reasons actually why we think that uh, justice league or a suicide squad i should say completely underperformed at the box office and uh hbo max obviously being one of them it's not the only reason it's not the sole exclusive reason but it's definitely one of the contributing factors all right mario writes do you believe that warner brothers should consider doing a dead shot and blood sport movie or limited series no absolutely not number one because i don't think anybody would watch it but number two is they're basically i mean come on let, let rob let's call a spade a spade here when they realized they couldn't get Will Smith in there, they just created another character that was just a hell of a lot like Will Smith's character. Right. I mean, even the motivations, right? Like, Will Smith's motivations in the first one was his daughter. And so then they go and get Idris Elba, who's a super marksman, just like 
uh, Deadshot, and who, and again, same motivations. Let's start, let, let's let's call it what it is. They made Idris Elba a new character, but it was the same character in, in so many different ways. The motivations, the skill set, all that kind of stuff. So what would be, my question would be, what would be the point of doing a Deadshot and Bloodsport uh, show or movie together? I just, just it's just the two, the same character. I don't know, Rob, what do you think about that? I, I kind of agree with that. Although I, I will say this. I'm I, I, seeing Idris Elba and Will Smith in a movie together That'd doing some kind of buddy comedy something or or action film with the two of them, like a Tango and Cash type of deal, you know, although I hope it would be better than Tango and Cash. I would love to see that because you know what? Those are those are I really like Idris Elba and Will Smith. I still don't think Idris Elba has been utilized. He he has not been given the leading man role he deserves since The Wire. I mean, I don't think anybody was a more compelling character in The Wire than Stringer Bell Stringer was. Stringer Bell, I mean, baby. That, that guy, that was the first. I didn't even know Idris Elba was British. Idris Elba was so good as Stringer Bell, and I'm like, who is this guy? And I'm waiting for when he top lines a movie and he's the, the lead star. He needs his John Wick or whatever, something to make him the star that he is because I always feel like, and I like Suicide Squad a great deal, and I thought he was really good in it. But I want to see him get his due, man. Yeah. All right. Let's do one more while we've got Rob here with us. And this one comes to us from Oscar. Tried to pronounce this. Armanderas. Oscar Armanderas, who writes, I love the Suicide Squad so much. And it is better uh, way. And it is better way than Black Widow movie. I thought you probably meant to say way better than the Black Widow movie. <laughs> and I am going to see it again with my dad in IMAX. Oh, listen, I fully agree. Like, I enjoyed Black Widow. I mean, I put it on the lower end of the MCU scale just because I thought they totally botched their villains in it. But overall, I still enjoyed Black Widow. I had a good time with it. But yes, Suicide Squad, I, I can't disagree with you at all. I thought Suicide Squad, it's a very, very different movie but a vastly superior movie, I thought, as far as overall experience goes. Rob, you know, what do you think? You think I mean, it's you don't like to compare movies too awful much, but comparing Black Widow and and because uh, I think you like Black Widow more than I did. So, yeah. would you say you had a better time watching Black Widow or uh, Suicide Squad? A better time, the Suicide Squad I found to be wildly entertaining. You know, but I wanted different things out of it. I mean, the Suicide Squad was this irreverent brand. Like, you can't, dude, come on, Starro. And I, there, there's so much in, there's so much in, uh, James Gunn made a $180 million movie about anarchy. I never, if he had made that movie for $10 million, I don't think it could have been, it, it could have been just as good. The fact that he had 180 million to do things like Starro, it was that sensibility. He could have made that movie as an ultra low budget trauma film. And I think it could have been just as entertaining because he would have been even more irreverent. But I can't believe, I can't believe Warner Brothers let him make that movie. And, and for, for no other reason, I will always love the Suicide Squad because it was a hoot. It was like watching James Gunn got to take all, like from the, from the beautiful, terrible mind of james gunn what was it what was in the trailer what do they call it yeah it was something like the beautiful lines. horrible the beautiful horrible mind of james gunn uh, you know what was it was such an auteurist james gunn gave us the exact movie that he wanted to give us and and i think could it have were there pacing issues perhaps 
but I think it was it was so him, and it was so I I mean I loved I think Suicide Squad's going to be looked at twenty or twenty five or thirty years from now, and people are going to be like, this was one of those unsung gems that deserved to do a lot better than it did. And because it's going to be constantly rediscovered and it's going to be a cult movie from now. I mean, remember, Shawshank Redemption didn't make any money either when it was released theatrically. Yeah, still <laughs> celebrated today. And now I, I, I'm not saying that Bloodsport is the new or uh, Suicide Squad is the new Shawshank Redemption. No, but, I'm not either. But I agree. It's going to be a movie that gets talked about for a lot of years. I, but I that's think what so. I mean. I, I, you know, sometimes. You know, I think I think that the Suicide Squad is a movie that the general population probably wasn't really into. Like your your friend watched the trailer and said yeah. he thought it looked like ass. There's a lot of people then that didn't get it. Yeah, again, yeah, it's got this hell's a poppin' punk sensibility that that is is something that only James Gunn. There's no other filmmaker working today that would have brought that sensibility to a major studio release. And on that alone, uh, I think it's it's worthy of song. Worthy of song indeed. Anyway, Rob, speaking of worthy of song, songs will be sung of the tales of the great Robert Meyer Burnett. Thanks for bringing uh, bringing it here today. Uh, dude, where can people follow you and all your goodness online until we see you again tomorrow? Well, I hope the songs aren't tragic operas, John, but you can find me on Instagram at Robert Meyer Burnett. You can find me on uh, uh, Twitter at Burnett RM or on my own YouTube channel, The Burnett Work. All right, dude. Great job again today. And I will talk to you again tomorrow. Have a good one. Thanks, man. Good show. Ladies and gentlemen, the one and the only, the great Mr. Robert Meyer Burnett. All right, let's keep things going here. If we still got a few minutes left, let's get through more of your uh, comments and questions you guys have sent in. Dangerous D writes in, as I take off these headphones, uh, Dangerous D writes, I love Suicide Squad. I have to admit, when I first saw Starro and his little starfish attach themselves to faces, I thought this could be a good horror movie. When I saw the astronauts with attached little Starros, I was a little scared. You want... You want a that film. You want you want a, a that film. I don't know what that means, but yes, there's definitely Starro brings a little bit of a horror element to the movie. But more than that, you know, we talked about this before. Like the end of the film, as the one guy with the star on his face speaking for Starro says, I was happy, floating looking at the stars. Like you understand that the story of Starro is also a tragic story. You know, Starro was just out there floating around in space, loving his life, looking at the stars. And then you get freaking astronauts drag him in there and then he's dragged down to earth and tortured for decades and blah, blah. He's like, yeah, he's pissed. Starro's pissed. I just, I, I just thought as a giant starfish, Think about this. The ridiculousness of a giant walking, talking starfish was a beautifully compelling villain of a film with a tragic story. And it just, they just made it work. He, Starro was a more compelling, more fleshed out villain than either of the two main villains in Black Widow. I, I, he just was. I mean, it's all subjective, but from my point, point of view, he just was. And that's kind of crazy. That's a little bit crazy. All right. Next up, uh, Dangerous D. No, that was Dangerous D, right? Yes. Uh, next up, uh, Jonas Diaz writes, Hey, John, 
Uh, love how these ensemble films, everyone has different favorite character lists. My favorite is between Ratcatcher 2 and Bloodsport. Imagine seeing future films with those CW Flash villains of the week like Mirror Man or Kite Man would be dope. You know, it is funny, Jonas, the way you mentioned that because the other day we talked on one of the companion videos about, you know, who would you like to see? Which Suicide Squad character would you like to see get their own spinoff movie? And every it started this great discussion of people talking about, no, this one was my favorite. No, that one was my favorite. And this one's my favorite. And it is really neat when a movie like this can come out and have so many different characters and everybody's debating about which ones were their favorite ones. Like even now in the live chat right now, we've got Yellow Flash is seeing uh, Weasel hands down. We got uh, people saying uh, Starro himself was the best one. Uh, we're seeing <laughs> really wanted Kite Man. Hell yeah. Kite Man and, and Harley Quinn is so freaking good. But it's really cool. And then Bob uh, is saying uh, King Shark forever. Kazora is saying Bloodsport. I mean, everybody's got their different things. Rick Flag. I mean, it's amazing. When you could, you know, you've done an ensemble movie well when there's not just one good character and everybody just says the same character. Everybody's saying the different characters, and that's when you know you've done an ensemble movie pretty damn well. All right, next up, Bro Thor writes. Hey, John, just want to say I love your show and all of you guys do such a fantastic job. Thank you for that, Bro Thor. I appreciate that, man. Uh, John, when the hell did Harley learn how to fight like that? I mean, shit, she effed these dudes up. Yeah, listen, what's interesting is, look, what I think a lot of people forget, including myself and a lot of us here, is that as much as it feels like Harley Quinn is a character who's been around a long time, the reality is that Harley Quinn is still a very relatively new character. Like she got her start on the Batman animated thing. And in comic book lifespans, that makes the Harley Quinn character still a very, very young character. Especially since, you know, she wasn't really starting to get utilized a lot more until a few years after that as well. So a lot of things comic book characters evolve over over time right their backstories change like hell when superman got introduced superman didn't fly did you guys know that when superman first got introduced superman didn't fly that was a, an ability that superman had that came later hell the backstory of lex luthor used to be that the reason this is true the backstory of Lex Luthor used to be that the reason he was evil and hated Superman was because uh, they did a scientific experiment. Something happened. And as a result of what happened involving Superman, Lex Luthor lost his hair. And he developed a hate on for Superman and the world because now he was bald. That is the stupidest stupidest backstory and motivation for a villain ever. But that's that used to be his backstory. So over years and years and years, these characters evolve and different aspects get added to them that were never there in the first place. Harley Quinn is still a very young character. And like in the Harley Quinn animated show, they added, like at least I think they added because I don't think it was there before, but they added in the Harley Quinn animated show that prior 
to becoming a doctor, like she was a world-class gymnast, like she was destined for Olympic gold, right? As, as a younger girl. And they start to explain why she's not just a doctor who's crazy. She is immensely physically skilled. So they've been starting to add things to her backstory because remember her backstory just simply was at one point, she was a therapist for the Joker fell in love with the Joker, went crazy, blah, blah, blah. But they have been adding more and more things to it, including a massive gymnastics background, combat training in her background. And you can say, well, that didn't used to be there. True, but this is still a young character. So uh, that's how they, they've, brought, they've brought Harley Quinn to that forefront. It's a great question, uh, bro, Thor, because we should ask those questions. Like, wait a minute, how can this girl just used to be like a psychiatrist all of a sudden be ninja woman and start taking all these guys? Well, they're evolving her backstory to give her all that kind of stuff. Anyway, uh, let's move on here. Next up, we got Ethan Holgate who writes, Hey, John, just a thought. I think James Gunn had a bit of Quentin Tarantino and Tim Burton uh, in the Suicide Squad. What I meant by that is Quentin Tarantino's storytelling techniques, seeing what happened forward and backwards. Well, yeah, but let's not pretend Quentin Tarantino was the first guy to do that. It's not like Quentin Tarantino created that technique. He uses it wonderfully, but it's not like he created that technique. Uh, forwards and backwards. And for Tim Burton, some character types like Polka Dot Man. Um, I I don't know. Again, I Polka Dot Man was just was was not a Tim Burton inspired thing. It was literally uh James Gunn talked about this. He said that he literally wanted to find like the most ridiculous character they had in DC. And he came across Polka Dot Man. And he decided to use Polka Dot Man. So while I think it's fair to say you see some similarities between techniques utilized by Quentin Tarantino and similarities in the sense that Polka Dot Man seems like a character that Tim Burton would have used too. I believe there are similarities, but I don't know that there are influences. Like I don't think Quentin Tarantino made James Gunn uh, want to tell the story a certain way. And I don't think Tim Burton's sensibilities is what motivated Tim Burton or motivated James Gunn to use Polka Dot Man. Similarities, yes. I don't know if I'd call them influences. But uh, maybe there was. Maybe we'll ask James Gunn someday and you'll say, oh, totally. Totally. I thought, which guy would Tim Burton choose? I mean, he very well may. You never know. All right. Next up. Dangerous D writes. Thinking about it, the Suicide Squad felt like a Quentin Tarantino, the hyperviolence, the obscure 60s, 70s music. Yeah, but all that was in, like, other than the hyperviolence, like the 60s, 70s music, that was all in Guardians of the Galaxy as well. Uh, the dialogue, I'm not bashing Gunn at all. Uh, in fact, it's the opposite. Did you feel a Tarantino influence in this movie, Bring on the Filthy? Again, no, I didn't. I, again, I felt some senses of similarities, but I really didn't fe feel an influence, especially when you go back and look at the way James Gunn has been doing his movies for years. Like when you go back and watch Slither, for example, you'll get a lot of similar, you'll feel a lot of the DNA um, <coughs> of Slither in Suicide Squad. So it's not like James Gunn was one kind of director and then suddenly became another. So again, I feel more like it's more accurate to say I sense some similarities as opposed to saying I sensed influences. But again, if we ask James Gunn, he may say, yeah, I was totally influenced by Quentin Tarantino. Uh, maybe, uh, it could be. All right, Sam Brown writes, Saw Free Guy and Suicide Squad on Wednesday and Thursday, respectively. Was a great week. I thought Free Guy had a pretty bad plot, but was super fun and enjoyable. Suicide Squad was just 
insanely good. Listen, I've been telling guys, if you live in the North American uh, audience here, I've been telling you guys this weekend, don't just go to the theater, go and do a double feature, go and watch suicide squad and watch free guy. They're two very, very different movies, but they're so brain meltingly fun. I listen for me, you guys know, look, I, I'm a Ryan Reynolds guy. He's a good Canadian kid. So obviously I, I, I'm, I have a predisposed to really liking Ryan Reynolds, but I don't like every movie he does. I mean, we've, we've talked about that recently, but even though I, I'm a big Ryan Reynolds fan, I didn't know what we were going to get out of free guy. I really, I really didn't know. And I was so pleasantly shocked and surprised by just how damn good this movie is it is so fun i mean it's 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 hard to put in words but you know i was writing to somebody and i said you know i literally my wife ann i have not seen ann laugh and smile like that in a movie in in a while it's been a while since I guess every once in a while through the movie, I would look over at Anne and she would just have this giant grin on her face and laughing out loud. And, and I was too. And it's just, it's a remarkably entertaining movie. It's not going to win any Oscars. Don't, don't get me wrong. It's not going to win any Oscars, but it is a wonderfully entertaining time at the movies. And I thought the plot was actually quite good. So, I think if you can go not just in the post-pandemic era, or we're it's not we're not really post-pandemic, are we? But not just in the pandemic era. I'm telling you, a back-to-back double feature in theaters of Suicide Squad and Free Guy is one of the best two movies in theaters right now that you can go and watch back-to-back. I can remember in a couple of years. It's really great. So if you get a chance to watch these things, I highly, highly, highly encourage you to go do that double feature this weekend. Because uh, I know Ann and I are planning on it. We're going to go watch Suicide Squad again in theaters. And we're going to go out of that theater and right into the 9 p.m. showing of Free Guy. Totally doing that. And uh, I think you guys should too. Because it's a treat yo- treat yourself, as Tom Hatherford would say. Treat yourself. Go do that. All right. Next up. Uh, we got B. Wayne New York who writes. Uh, Rob and John. So I just saw the Suicide Squad in the theater Uh, a must and I loved it. It looks like this movie was a real gun family affair. Not only did his girlfriend play Amelia, one of Waller's office aides, but his brother, Sean played both inmate calendar man and weasel. Yeah. Sean often pops up in his stuff. Like not a lot of people maybe know this, but while Bradley Cooper does the voice of rocket raccoon, the guy actually on set doing all the motion capture for rocket is James Gunn's brother, Sean. And of course, Sean, I'm forgetting the, you guys in the live chat, do you remember Sean's character's name in Guardians of the Galaxy? He's Yondu's right-hand man. Captain's got to teach stuff. Yo, what was that? Craglin. Thank you. Sapphire was the first one to put it in. Sapphire, Ellis Films, uh, and, uh, and a bunch of you guys are getting that too, but Craglin. Yes. Craglin is his name. So he's got him in there too, but it's more than just that. Uh, James Gunn is frequently works with Michael Rocker, obviously in Guardians of the Galaxy as well as Yondu, but he also used him in Slither. He's great in Slither. Nathan Fillion, who does a little cameo that nobody recognizes in Guardians of the Galaxy, and Nathan Fillion was his main lead star in Slither as well. James Gunn is one of these directors who likes to work with, a, with his friends. 
he likes to work with a certain set of people. And he likes to work with his friends. And uh, you can really see that in the stuff that he does. Cam's teaching stuff. Anyway, next up, we've got uh, Juice who writes, uh, I've lived most of my life in movie theaters. However, it's going to be a while until I return because I can't tell my kid to avoid large crowds and turn around and sit in a crowded theater no matter how badly I want to see a movie. That's as good a reason as any, man. Uh, there's plenty of content to stream, and even though my couch can't compete with the theatrical experience, there's no risk of getting my family sick over a movie. Dude, totally understand that. Yeah, I've, I've said that. Look, that's there are some very legitimate reasons for not going to the movie theaters right now, obviously. Now, I myself, I'm vaccinated. I know it's still mathematically possible that I could get sick as a vaccinated person, but the odds are extremely reduced as a result. The math is just there. The reports, the numbers, the data shows it. You're just massively less likely to get sick if you're vaccinated. So I feel comfortable, but I don't blame anybody who doesn't feel comfortable. Not at all, especially for somebody like you who's got a kid and you're trying to set an example for a kid, totally respect that, totally understand that, and I think that's as good a reason as any man. So you don't have to justify that. All right, next up, uh, we go to your tribal chief who writes, Independence Day 2, bad movie. Uh, yes, it was. Um, Men in Black International, bad movie. Yes, it was. And now Suicide Squad, which I loved. Hollywood, stop making sequels to Will Smith movies without Will Smith. Box office-wise, it never works out. And it's funny because we talked about that on the show yesterday. That there seems to be, whether it's just an illusion or whether it's real, there seems to be a pattern of taking hit Will Smith movies and then making a sequel without Will Smith. They did it for Independence Day. It bombed. They did it for Men in Black. It bombed. Now they did it with Suicide Squad. And while the movie's magnificent, it bombed, right? Now, is that just an illusion? Is that just a placebo effect? Probably. But maybe there's something to it. Making Will Smith hits and making sequels without Will Smith, it financially doesn't seem to work out very well. It just doesn't seem to work out financially very well. All right, just time for a couple more quick ones here, guys. A Silly Goose writes, Rob, cover your ears, and Rob's not here right now. I love the Star Trek Kelvin movies. Me too, brother. Uh, every time rumors of a fourth one come around, I get extremely excited. My friend and I both agree that the first one is best, uh, and we both love Into Darkness as well. Really hope a fourth one happens. Yeah, I thought Into Darkness was probably the weakest of the J.J. Abrams era Star Trek films. I still thought it was decent. I still enjoyed it, but it was the weakest. It had issues. The final one they did, I think is Star Trek Beyond, the one that Simon Pegg wrote the screenplay for. I love that movie. I thought that, and Idris Elba's in that as well. Idris Elba plays the, uh, plays the villain in that movie. Uh, Idris is fantastic. That movie is great. Terrible trailers. Absolutely terrible trailers for that movie. Um, but overall, I thought it was great. And yeah, me and me and Rob, we we will discuss and debate Star Trek like that all the time. And it's just, you know, I, I think what what a lot of people who are against the new Star Trek, what I generally find is when I speak to them, is that what it really is is they want Star Trek to be like what Star Trek was before. They want the Star Trek they remember. They want 
those same feelings and that same style of show that the original Star Trek series was, and later on shows like The Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, all that kind of stuff. And I respect that. I understand that because the new Star Trek isn't really like those shows. Isn't really like that, that older style Star Trek. It's different. It's, it's adapted. It's changed. But what I often say to these friends of mine is that you got to understand guys before the new Star Trek came out with Chris Pine, Star Trek was literally a dying franchise. The Star Trek fans were literally dying off. Like the, the fans of Star Trek were getting older and older and older and they started to die off. And there was no such thing as new Star Trek fans. And you look at the Star Trek movies box offices, they just dropped and dropped and dropped and dropped and dropped and dropped. And they none of them made any money. Nobody cared about Star Trek anymore, except for the existing Star Trek fans that were dying off and not being replenished by new fans. And that's why for a couple of years, when they announced they were making a new Star Trek movie, I said, this is the stupidest idea in the world. There is not a fan base for this anymore. It is a dead franchise. Star Trek is, at the time, a dead franchise. It was literally bringing in no new life. There was no new fans and all the existing fans were dying off. But Star Trek then came out with Chris Pine and Zach Quinto. And it changed Star Trek. It adapted Star Trek into now a property for a newer generation of fans. And to my shock and surprise, because I shit-talked that Star Trek movie before it came out. I was shit-talking that thing like crazy. And then it came out, and I remember watching it and going, damn, that was, that was really fun. I enjoyed that. I liked the banter of the characters. It was at its core Star Trek, but, but a totally different DNA now. And it's different. And what I find when I talk to some of the older Star Trek fans, and I'm not trying to make an excuse for why they don't like what I like. I'm just telling you what they have told me. Okay. I'm just reporting to you what they have said to me. They generally have a disdain for the new stuff because it's not what old Star Trek was. And that's fine. At this point, then, what I say to Rob, and I've said this to Rob before, I said, Rob, then you, like, instead of complaining about the new Star Trek every single day, just accept that, okay, there are two different Star Treks. There's the era of Next Generation and Before, and then there's the Chris Pine and Forward. And the Chris Pine and Forward Star Trek is not for you. So just don't watch it and don't complain about it every single day. <laughs> You know, like when I watch a movie that I hate, I'll say that I hate it and then I move on from it. I don't talk about it every day unless people ask me about it and then I'll address it. But yeah, it's, it's just, I think a lot of people forget that Star Trek was literally a dead franchise before the Chris Pine iteration came along. So what was, what were they going to do? You either don't make any more Star Trek or you continue to make the same Star Trek that you did before and have it continuously fail. Well, then there's a third option. Make more Star Trek, but change Star Trek for a new era and a new audience. And bring in new fans. And, and it's done it. 
it's done it. So I, I don't know. That's kind of my take on that. Anyway, I answered that longer than I should have. But anyway, uh, that's just me. Okay, guys, that'll do it for today's installment of the John Campia Show. Thank you so much for being here. Listen, there are still more questions to come from uh, Eddie Burton, Ryan L, Godzilla 2000, Do not worry, guys. I'm going to do a companion video later tonight. I don't know if I'm going to do it live or not like I did last night, but I'm going to do a companion video later tonight, and we'll get all caught up on these questions here. Don't forget, guys, the John Campia Show also returns tomorrow. Me, Robert Meyer Burnett, and I know I was going to, I said I was going to try to get Kimberly today, and I totally forgot. I'm going to see if I can get Kimberly on with me and Robert tomorrow as well. So make sure you guys come back and join us for that and guys special thank you to all you guys who sent in these live comments and questions number one because he gave us great fun things to talk about but number two by sending them in and sent using that tip link you supported this channel as you did it and all of us involved with the john campus show thank you guys very very much for your support all right guys that will do it for me thanks a lot for being here my name's john campia and until next time my friends bye bye